the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Welcome indeed. It is seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. Push that button over there, Seth. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. It is seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on a Monday, the 22nd morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. We have a very, very packed show today. Coming up in about uh, half an hour, Congressman Jim Jordan will join us. we got a host of things to talk about with him, including the targeting of American citizens. We briefly touched on last week. Uh, by the federal government based on search terms like MAGA, Trump, the Bible, and other things. We're going to get into that into more depth now that we have him in the district today. 1010, um, we're going to talk to the Reverend Nathan Newman from the Presbyterian Church of America. I like this. More Christian organizations need to enter the fray when it comes to protecting children from experimentation and some of the other ghoulish things that are being done by the Mengalas all over this country. So they wrote a letter to the federal government, did the Presbyterians. We're going to talk to Reverend Newman about that. 1035, Josh Hammer, senior editor-at-large at Newsweek, syndicated host of The Josh Hammer Show, has been one of the loudest and strongest supporters for Ron DeSantis in this primary uh, season. <clears throat> he has uh, written an article. We're going to talk to him about it. He's got a show. He broadcasts as well, The Josh Hammer Show. We're going to talk to him about what he does to move on from DeSantis and getting behind Donald Trump. Then at 1110, James Fishback, founder of Incubate Debate, has written a really, really important in-depth piece about what books are really being banned in this book-banning era that the left is so up in arms about. What books are really being banned, and are they really being banned at all or merely reassigned to age-appropriate locations? Big, big difference. So those are your guests, Jim Jordan, Reverend Nathan Newman, Josh Hammer, and James Fishback. And I'm going to start the show today with Greetings this. from Florida. The warmth of being home is a reminder why I've chosen public service. 
from joining the United States Navy and serving in Iraq to representing the people in the U.S. Congress and now serving as governor of Florida. And it reminds me why I decided to run for president, to fight for those who have been forgotten in this country. This is America's time for choosing. We can choose to allow a border invasion or we can choose to stop it. We can choose reckless borrowing and spending or we can choose to limit government and lower inflation. We can choose political indoctrination or we can choose classical education. These choices are symptoms of the underlying struggle to ensure that constitutional government can endure and that Western civilization can survive. And we launched this campaign to bring accountability to government, regain sovereignty at our border and restore sanity to our society. We cannot succeed as a country if we allow our nation to be invaded, our currency to be debased, our cities to crumble, and our kids to be indoctrinated. The D.C. elites who facilitated this mess do not care about you, and they do not work for you. They work for themselves. They seek to accumulate power at your expense to pursue an agenda that is harmful to the American people. Citizens do not serve politicians. It is the duty of politicians to serve you. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. Reversing the decline of this nation requires leadership that delivers big results for the people we are elected to serve. I have a record of leading with conviction, championing an agenda marked by bold colors, delivering on my promises, and defeating the people who are responsible for our nation's decline. That is the type of leadership we need for all of America. Now, over the past many months, Casey and I have traveled across the country to deliver a message of hope that decline is a choice and that we can, in fact, succeed again as a nation. Nobody worked harder, and we left it all out on the field. Now, following our second-place finish in Iowa, we've prayed and deliberated on the way forward. If there was anything I could do to produce a favorable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci, Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The days of putting Americans last, of kowtowing to large corporations, of caving to woke ideology are over. I thank all of our passionate supporters who have stood by us through it all, that we had people volunteer to come to Iowa in the middle of a blizzard to knock on doors and make phone calls touched us dearly. No candidate had more thrown at him, but no candidate had so many committed volunteers and staff. Finally, I want to thank my wife, Casey, and our kids, Madison, Mason, and Mamie. Casey's gone far above and beyond in her support for our campaign and for our cause. She's not only a great wife and mother, She's a great American who cares deeply about the future of the country that our kids will inherit. Our kids have seen and done a lot on the trail, from playing on the famed Field of Dreams baseball site in Iowa, 
to making their first snowman in New Hampshire. They are one of the reasons we fight so hard for what we believe in. Winston Churchill once remarked that success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. While this campaign has ended, the mission continues. Down here in Florida, we will continue to show the country how to lead. Thank you and God bless. That announcement made over the weekend uh, sent some shockwaves, obviously, through the political establishment. And moreover, it sent some shockwaves through um, the American voters. You now have a binary choice. And I'm sorry, Nikki Haley, but I'm not sorry. You are not one of them. You now have a binary choice between President Donald J. Trump and President Joseph R. Biden. You now have just those two to choose from. I was saddened when I heard uh, the speech by, my, by Ron DeSantis, but I was not shocked by it. Uh, it was clear after the distant second-place finish in Iowa that this Republican Party is still addicted to President Trump. They will accept no other. And for those who are saying that Ron DeSantis ran a bad campaign, I am here to tell you, literally, there is nothing that he nor anyone else could have done differently that would have changed the outcome when the party is addicted to one particular person. And by the way, DeSantis nailed it when he said that President Trump's uh, service was stymied by, you know, the, the radical left. It was. They stole, first of all, I, I don't want to get into the fourth year of his first term, but, but they stole an election from him. He deserved four more years. Everyone knows that. So they did. They stymied it. And and American Republicans, particularly, are absolutely livid about that. They have been so advised since literally, uh, you know, November of 2020, and especially on January 20th of 2021. It was stolen. It was wrong. And more and more people have been angry and simmering, if not boiling, over that for three straight years now. And they want to right what was wrong. I know that is a huge, huge, not the only, but a huge part of President Trump's appeal to the Republicans. They want him to get what he deserves, which is that second term. Secondly, throughout this entire period over the last, you know, 12 months or so, the lawfare that has been directed at President Trump in an attempt to disqualify him from running for president or to sully or dirty or muddy his name with a bunch of convictions on felonies that would never, ever, ever have been brought. Indictments and charges that never would have been brought against any other candidate, any other former politician, future politician, candidate, or anyone else for that matter. Because those things, the things that he's accused of, have happened in other places with other people, and they've never been charged. Why are they being charged this time? To stop him from running for president. Or, if you believe on the other side, to ensure that he gets exactly what he's about to get, and that is the nomination, so that they can then beat him in the general election with the mud and the stain of a bunch of felony convictions. So the fact is... There is nothing that Ron DeSantis could have done differently. There is nothing he could have done that would have changed the outcome of this particular primary season. Even if we aren't even going to get to cast a vote that matters in in the uh, for president, of course, I mean, in March, 
here in the state of Ohio, because this is all going to be over after South Carolina. When Nikki Haley loses in New Hampshire tomorrow, when she loses in South Carolina, clearly she's going to have to do the same thing and drop. So it will be exactly what I said, the binary choice between Biden and Trump. And um, the reality is Ron DeSantis did everything that a great governor, who is one of the most exceptional candidates for president to come down the conservative pipeline in 40 years, literally since Reagan, there's nothing he could have done differently to stop this Trump train. The Trump train is on the tracks. It is being fed more coal, which I love, by the way, the metaphor, because the left would, if they had their choice, would have him in an electric train. But he is being, uh, he is, he is literally gaining steam and gaining power and gaining prowess. And that is exactly what has to happen. But I do not blame Ron DeSantis for not winning this presidential nomination. I do not believe anybody could, I don't believe Ronald Reagan himself could have stopped Donald Trump. After everything that had happened, with President Trump gaining strength with every single new ridiculous scurrilous charge they throw at him, are you kidding? Not to mention, let's let's be frank here, the absolute disaster that the United States has become under Joe Biden. And when the comparative is made, when you look at what Donald Trump's economy was like compared to Joe Biden's economy, when you look at what Donald Trump's record in foreign, foreign policy was compared to Joseph Biden's, when you look at national security compared to Joseph Biden's, when you look at the border compared to Joseph Biden's, when you look at all of it, by comparison, it's a landslide. Donald Trump was a far superior president to Joseph Biden. And that's exactly what Ron DeSantis said. When you take the record of achievement, add to it an angry voting base that saw an election get stolen, add to it months of left-wing, radical, un-American prosecutors filing ridiculous charges and bringing indictment after indictment of Donald Trump in all of these different uh, uh, jurisdictions and venues, When you add all of those things together, this was inevitable. Ronald Reagan himself couldn't have won a nomination against Donald Trump in this moment in time. Not a chance. So Ron DeSantis goes back to Florida to continue to be what he has been for the last now several years, five years anyway, six years, the best governor in the state or in the United States of America, continue to take on corporations, continue to take on educators with their wokeness and their indoctrinations, continue to do what is right for the people of Florida as it pertains to public policy, as it pertains to liberation, freedom, and no tyranny, and no lockdowns, and so many other things that happened all over this country. As he continues to go back and do what he does, he should do so with his head held high. And as a DeSantis supporter, and I know Josh Hammer and I are going to talk about this at 1035, I will hold my head high having supported a guy that I truly believe is what I said he was the best conservative candidate with a record, resume, and executive leadership to come down the line in over 40 years. We could literally go back that far, maybe even a little further. So uh, I hold my head held high, and I love that Ron DeSantis did the right thing. He said what needed to be said. I pledged to support the Republican nominee, and I will, and I do. And he has my endorsement because he is superior to Joseph Biden. And we cannot and will not allow this destruction of America to continue. So Ron DeSantis is doing it right. Tim Scott did it right. 
Everybody else who has dropped, except for Chris Christie, is doing it right. And that's coalescing around the nominee. Nikki Haley Haley will do so in short order. At least she better. Because this is what, like I said, there there is no possible way to stop the Trump train once it is in motion, particularly given all of the circumstances that I just laid out. None. None. So now we need to make sure we ride that train all the way through this country and break through all of the barrier. Well, they don't believe in barriers or walls. Break through everything that the Democrats uh, put for put forth in in front of us. And whether that's supporting him in these ridiculous charges that he's facing, supporting him in uh, in, in uh, 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 policy debates, in mes- uh, messaging, and so forth, we need to make sure everybody is on board. That's the reality. Last week we came back on the air uh, after um, uh, the Iowa caucuses. And I said, well, there they are. Trump won by around 30 points. DeSantis finished second. Big disappointment for him. Haley finished third. Big disappointment for her. At what point, I asked, is it time to coalesce around the Republicans' presumptive nominee? I said, Ron DeSantis is going to have to ask, answer that question. I'm going to have to answer that question. We're all going to have to answer that question. What if they're successful with their lawfare? Do we want to have somebody still waiting in the bullpen warming up, if you recall when I said that? Ron DeSantis could still stay in it just to be that guy in the event that he is needed and called upon. But I said there's going to come a decision as to whether or not you want to do that or whether you want to say that's it, we're going to to rally around this one guy. And the question is, is when? The answer was one week. One week later, here we are. Governor DeSantis has, uh, has conceded, if you will, has thrown his support behind Donald Trump, and it's time for every single non-leftist Democrat in America to do do the same thing. Notice what I said. I didn't say time for every Republican in America to do the same thing. I don't care if you supported Tim Scott or Doug Burgum or Chris Christie or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. Uh, Not just Republicans. Every non-radical leftist. Moderates, moderate Democrats even, you know this country cannot sustain the path that it's on if we have another four years of what Joe Biden is doing and has done. You know this. The time is now to start rallying to save the country. I didn't know if it would come this quickly or not, but it did. It's here, so it's time to get on board. I made the same pledge, not that mine was binding, that Ron DeSantis and the others made. That I said, I will support the eventual nominee. And it is 99.9% likely that it was going to be Donald Trump. I said that many, many months ago, just based on polling. But I still liked Ron DeSantis. I liked his message. I liked his resume. But if indeed he was not to be the guy, and he's not, then we will do everything we can. I also remember saying on these very airwaves, if Chris Christie won the nomination, now we knew that wasn't going to happen, but just to make the point, Chris Christie would be would be preferable to Donald or to uh, 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 Joseph Biden. Chris Christie would have. Asa Hutchinson would have. For crying out loud, I don't care who you threw up there. There is nobody that is even moderately more more to the right of Joe Biden that I wouldn't prefer to Joe Biden and his cabal of leftist radicals. I, there's nobody I wouldn't have supported. And I said, if it's, I don't care if it's Chris Christie. I don't care if it's Tim Scott. I don't care if it was Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't care who it is. I will work my tail off to campaign for that individual to save this country. 
Well, that person is Donald Trump, which we most of us knew it was going to be, regardless of what your first or second choices were. We knew that was going to be. And I will now back that pledge. I will, I will follow up, and I will work my tail off to campaign to save this country, and that is to get Donald Trump back into the White House. I hope you will join me in that endeavor, including all of my uh, uh, listeners who are DeSantis supporters or Haley fans or anybody else. It doesn't matter. We have to do what is right, and this is what is right, and it's what is necessary. Uh, friends, let's pledge our allegiance to this great country. Stand and put your hand on your heart and face that flag. If you believe in the greatness and the liberty of this country, join us for this. If you are one of the radical leftists I mentioned, don't pretend. Just take a knee over there like the good little Marxist you are. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, 935. Good Monday morning to you. Thanks for staying with us here on AM 1420. The Answer, as it is a Monday, you know what that means. It's time for a conversation with Ohio's 4th Congressional District Representative, who also happens to sit at the chair uh, or as the chair of the House Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization uh, Subcommittee, also a member of the Oversight Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan, back with us from the district this morning. Congressman, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Bob. Good to be, good to be with you. I hope you hope you had a good weekend. Yeah, a little cool, a little cool. Did, did you, uh, get, on, did you <laughs> get on the slopes or anything true. this weekend or uh, anything fun in the uh, in the cold? No, we took it easy. Actually, we've been we've been gone a lot. We were in Iowa last weekend, as, as you know, and then uh, kind of nice to be home in Ohio. And we we took kind of easy. And we got some stuff in the in the fourth district this week. Or we, what I got, I got head back to. I'm going back to DC Thursday and Friday for some depositions and in the impeachment in inquiry. Uh, a couple of the people who were partners with um, Hunter Biden, Good. and then um, then we're off on the, the, this weekend down to help uh, a colleague in the in the great state of Alabama. Okay, great stuff, uh, and and uh, and I want to hear more about those depositions too. But uh, I want to start with uh, a follow up on uh, we we got a little bit interrupted last week as you had to go to a, a hearing uh, last Wednesday when we spoke. So I want to get a little bit more in depth on the issue of the federal government uh, using search terms such as MAGA and Trump and Bible and so forth to financially surveil Americans because they're afraid that they may be uh, people who use those terms and shop at certain stores uh, might be violent extremists. Um, This is just so incredibly important and so incredibly dangerous, Congressman. Can you tell us any more today that we didn't know last week? Well, we, we're, we're just on the front end of this investigation. We got some initial documents, and we're pursuing more information and, and documents and people we need to talk to. But um, it's funny because the documents we do have sound a lot like uh, that, if you remember, because we talked a lot about this, that memorandum from the Richmond Field Office of the FBI, which was describing pro-life Catholics and, and said if they're a pro-life Catholic who attends traditional mass, that they're, they're, a, they're a, an extremist, they're a radical. And it was, in fact, they called them radical traditional Catholics was the term they used. And, of course, the, the FBI was quick, oh, that was a one-off, we're not doing this. Well, now it appears maybe this is broader than, than they were initially telling us. And because you had, at the suggestion, and I use that term lightly, at the suggestion of uh, uh, the, the government, banks were searching their 
customers' transactions for key terms. Sometimes there are terms related to it that, are, that are languages put in a transaction that's done online. Other times it was just searching debit and credit card purchases where those things were purchased. But for key terms about, uh, about their uh, customers, uh, without it looks like without any legal process. So in other words, without a warrant, without any, without any legal process whatsoever, and uh, they were saying compile compile purchases that were done uh, with these um, merchant category codes. Did they shop, use their debit card or credit card at Cabela's? Did they, did they buy religious text? Uh, were they shopping at Bass Pro Shop? Uh, were they using terms that they did online transactions? Were they talking about MAGA, Patriot, Trump, those kind of things? And it's, it, I mean, you just look at this and you're like, this is frightening because it's right in line with, uh, like I said, what, what we saw earlier uh, last year with with uh, the memorandum at the Richmond Field Office of the FBI. So we're going to dig into this more because this looks to me like a direct violation of First Amendment, Second Amendment, and Fourth Amendment uh, liberties of the American people. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I sit here and I look at the story and I just think to myself, what kind of a country is this? I mean, it is absolutely none of your business, Representative Jim, Jim Jordan, what I yep. buy. It is none of yep. uh, Christopher Ray's business what I buy or where I shop or what kind of a mass I go to. I mean, you know what I mean? The, the, the privacy aspect of, or the violation of privacy, I should say, aspect of this is just chilling. Why does my yep. government want to know what I'm buying, where I'm buying it, what you know, when I'm buying it? Um, they have no right, none whatsoever. Yep. And you know, I mean, I, I'd, I'd go to go into Cabela's and shop with you, and you can watch what I buy, but that would be my choice. You don't get to ask me later on because it's none of your right. business as a member of the federal government, right? Yeah, exactly. And remember the 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 uh, how we initially got onto this subject and started looking into this was because of an FBI whistleblower came to us and was able to talk to us and show us a document sent by the government to Bank of America where um, it said well, for all Bank of America uh, uh, Bank of America credit card and debit card purchases around January six, twenty twenty one, was a time window around that that that, that date. And it said any any uh, debit or credit card purchases in the D.C. area around that date, and then <clears throat> excuse me, it overlaid that with any purchase at any time of a firearm using a Bank of America card, you know, you know, a debit card or, or a credit card. So they were looking for basically, did you ever buy a gun, and were you in the D.C. area? So th- that's a lot of America. Man, you might have been in the D.C. area just to visit your mom, visit your aunt, whatever. Never, never even went to the Capitol or what or, or, on, on that date. But they were compiling that information. And this agent told us in his deposition, he said, I looked at this and said, there's no proper criminal criminal investigative predicate here. And he didn't use the material. He was a, a good agent. That's why he came to forward to us as a whistleblower. That's what prompted this all. And then we've been, to, we've been digging more, and we're now beginning to get a few other documents. So we don't know how extensive this is, mm-hmm. but we know it's troubling with what little we've gotten thus far. Yeah, better, better believe it. We're talking to Congressman Jim Jordan this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, you mentioned the word deposition. I want to go to go to the Hunter story. Uh, I found out over the weekend it's the 28th of February, and I apologize in advance yeah. for being disturbed by that. You know how I feel about this. I'm an impatient guy. Sure. Why the hell is it <laughs> another five weeks? He was supposed to yeah. testify a couple of months ago, and you know, and he played that grandstanding yeah. thing. So why, why so far off do we put these things so we can get Get some answers about him and about his father. Yeah, I mean, look, look we'd all like this to go faster, but um, when, when on the 13th of December, when he decided to, to you know, not testify, uh, we've been working, our counsel have been working with their counsel, trying to determine if, in fact, he would come forward. 
Uh, he, he was not willing to until we held the contempt markup and the, both committees passed the contempt resolution. And that, that resolution was headed to the floor of the House, where I believe it would have had to vote if it, if it went there. And, and then his counsel wanted to talk to us. And so it, it took a while, but we worked out this date. I understand it's, it's a ways off. But the, the one thing I will say is, with it coming on the 28th, it does allow us to get every other deposition in that we wanted to prior to talking to Mr. Biden. So we're going to talk to Rob Walker. We're going to talk to Eric Schwerin. We're going to talk to uh, Tony Bobolinsky. We're going to talk to Jim Biden all before prior to that date. In fact, now those all those depositions are, in fact, scheduled. We're going to talk to another FBI agent who's important in the investigation of Hunter Biden out of David Weiss's office. Uh, so that does allow us to get all those done prior to, which is something that we thought made some sense once we got to this point. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go through them. Then, then at that point, Bob, it's, it's it's do we do we move forward with actual articles of impeachment uh, once we've compiled all the evidence? So that'll be a decision that the House of Representatives has to make, and we'll go from there. Congressman uh, Jim Jordan is our guest. Congressman, I got to ask you about a tough one now, and again, apologies in advance. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. I, I don't need to apologize to you, but I, I, I get people who say, "Why do you kiss Jim Jordan's rear end every time you talk?" And I was like, I guarantee <laughs> you, he doesn't feel like he doesn't feel like he's being given uh, softballs because I come at you with things that the people want yeah. answers well, you're to. You're allowed so, to. You pay my salary, and all your listeners. No, pay I know, but but you you know me, and you know. Away. Yeah, you know I have great respect for you and great respect for your office, uh, but well, but there you. are things yeah. that I have to ask that uh, you know I sure. just I just want to get them out there. What the living hell is going on with another CR? Again, we yeah. we we, we yeah. you know McCarthy was booted over this for crying out loud, largely over this. Yeah. We did one before Christmas. Now we got another one until March. We just keep kicking that can down the road. And then what did we get for extending it, extending the Democrat spending? Did we get a nickel? Yeah. A nickel of, of of cuts anywhere? Did we get any uh, concessions whatsoever whatsoever on the border that is allowed? And I think you've pointed out is on pace for twelve million illegal crossings during Biden's term. I mean, did we get any concessions yeah. at all? And the speaker is just going right along. It's all it's all good here, no problem. I mean, how did we improve from McCarthy to Johnson if this is what he's going to do? Go ahead. Well, you know, I I, I did not support that i voted against it last week there was roughly half the republicans in in the, in the house voted against it um I, I, we've talked before without getting in, in into the weeds too much i think a much better strategy right now is to try to pass put it on the floor say we're going to pass a cr for the whole year enough of this finagling around we're going to pass a cr for the whole year and if we did that there's an automatic cut that kicks in on april 30th so i would and I, we've talked about this before that was that's actually one of the things I ran on as speaker. One of one, one of the things I think some of my colleagues oppose so much because it would jeopardize the earmarks so many of our members uh, and, and Democrat members get in, in in these appropriation bills. But it would at least begin to save us money, and more importantly, the the idea that oh shoot I'm going to lose my earmarks that gets people to the table to negotiate on policy, which is about all you're going to really win in, in divided government. So I'm, I'm for that strategy, still am, still think the speaker, I've actually said this to the speaker, uh, I said, put it on the floor, Have to make, make people take a stand on it. Because remember, the debt ceiling agreement, which contained that element, passed back uh, eight months ago. And, and, and so people have already been on record as supporting that concept. Why not put it on the floor and like say, okay, well, did you really mean it? Are you really in favor of putting, bringing people to the table to negotiate on policy and, and, and using the, the leverage of your earmarks to get, get that done? Uh, but unfortunately, we're not there. Pass another CR for 
what, six weeks, and we'll see what, what shakes out between now and then. Um, I'm, a, I'm nervous about everything coming due with one big ugly bill, which is something that we've all been against. Yeah. Because remember, FISA comes due in, in April as well. We have a bill that came out of judiciary that, that we think is the right right kind of legislation. Other people disagree. We're having a fight over that, too. And if it all comes due at the same time, there's the risk that you get something big and ugly like we did uh, in the last Congress. So uh, we'll just have to see. But you're right. I was opposed to it and voted against it. But um, unfortunately, that's not where the United States Senate wanted to go in the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of the United States Senate, we'll talk about the border now. Senate GOP leaders have drafted this deal with the White House. It's just, again, I'm, 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 I'm blown away here. A deal that would increase green cards by 50000 a year, work permits for adult children of HB, H-1B holders, immediate work permits to every illegal who's released into the country, taxpayer, <laughs> taxpayer-funded lawyers to represent them, expulsion authority for a limited number of days only if encounters exceed 5,000 a day over a seven-day period and restricting parole for those who enter without authorization between ports of entry. I mean, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republican leaders are co-sponsoring this and authoring this. I mean, Chuck Schumer's got them wrapped around his little pinky Chuck Schumer finger. And and I want to know, is there going to be brakes applied to this when it gets over to your side? Well, 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 and, and of course, the clincher is after all that, you know, after such a deal there, oh, you get to fund Ukraine as part of it. Yes, like, well, thank wait, you. wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, that's not how this is supposed to work. So, no, that, that I, and the speaker, to his credit, has said that's a non starter. Uh, thank goodness. I mean, look, because we know what you just described doesn't solve the border problem, and it's coupled with uh, additional American tax dollars going to Ukraine. Um, so that is just something that is not going to fly. Uh, we need to fix the border, plain and simple. And uh, um, that, 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 that's where the country is. Eight out of ten voters say it's a, it's a crisis on the border. And, and eight out of ten voters say that because it is. It is a crisis. And they, the Americans have common sense. So let's, let's focus on that. We put forward uh, the bill several months ago that we passed uh, that makes sense, that would fix it. But I actually talked with you, Bob. I think we're at a point where it's, it's basically stopped. Just stop. And I, I would, I, I've advocated for one simple sentence. No money can be used to process or release into the country any new migrants. You just say no to it. You could have a few special exceptions if someone needs emergency surgery and they got a relative here. And like, okay, there's certain kind of special things you could do. Short of that, just say stop because the problem is, is now so egregious, so, so big. You, you, you just, you don't, you don't want to allow any more in until you get a handle on it. So I think that makes sense, but, um, Again, that's not where that's not where Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer want to go. No, um, is there uh, is there a significant number of people like you in the House who feel the same way? I, there, there is. Look, there's three big things coming. You got the appropriations process coming in April. You got the FISA uh, re- reform legislation. The, the FISA uh, reauthorization is coming due in April, and of course, you have this bill. Well, we had better we had better show the American people we are fighting for them on something. Right now, it looks like that's not going to be the case on the appropriations, um, but uh, you know we'll, we'll, that remains to be seen. I think we can win on the FISA issue, and we can win on on this 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 Ukraine issue, um, and, and not not continue to send American tax dollars there. That to me is where we have to focus because um, those are the big three things coming up. And then once you get to that point, once you get to like you know end of April, it's pretty much all presidential politics. Um, and you know that, that that that's the good news. President Trump did a great job in in, in winning big in Iowa. And I think he's going to win big tomorrow in New Hampshire.
Well, I'm glad you brought up presidential politics. Obviously, Governor DeSantis called it a day yesterday uh, through his support behind President Trump, as he pledged that he would. Um, It's pretty much a binary choice now. It's going to be Joe Biden or it's going to be Donald Trump, or at least that's how I'm seeing it. Nikki Haley is going to drop out probably right after South Carolina when she doesn't even win her home state, and then it's all going to be over for, for the Republican side. So do you believe that it will be exactly that, a rematch, or do you think that there is a surprise waiting for us on the other side? Well, I think it's lining up like a rematch. You never know with the Democrats, um, and obviously, thirty-one percent. He's at thirty-one percent. I just I have a yeah. hard time believing they're going to nominate a guy whose approval rating is thirty-one percent, and it's going to drop yeah. over the course of the next nine months, not increase. Yeah, that that number is sort of uh, astonishing on, on, on both ways. You know, first of all, he's that low, and second of all, who are the thirty-one percent who think he's doing a good job? For goodness' sake, because it's been it's been nothing but a terrible job. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I feel like you know he's he's going to cling to it, and uh, even though uh, I think most Americans understand it's like he's not really up for the job. But you never know with Democrats; uh, they might try something when it gets close to the convention and and and, and, and swapping President Biden out for for someone else. But I do think it's probably going to shape up as Biden versus Trump, and I think President Trump's going to be our next president, which is exactly what our country needs. I uh, well, I agree with that last part. We absolutely need that. Um, I'm worried. I'm worried about the general election for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the ongoing lawfare against President Trump. They are trying to yeah. keep him off of the the ballot in a number of states. They have obviously got four different jurisdictions in which they have filed a combined 91 charges against him, uh, and they're going to they're going to convict him probably in some of those cases. I've said this to you before. He's not going to go 91 and 0 with left wing judges and left wing prosecutors drawing from left-wing jury pools, it's going to be very, very difficult to go 91-0. So the question is, is do you think there are going to be a number of moderates who won't vote for somebody with a convicted felony on his record? No, I think they're seeing through it. And, you know, they know Alvin Bragg's case in Manhattan, the, the state DA there, is, is ridiculous. They're now seeing how ridiculous Fonnie Willis is, just, just the shenanigans with that entire investigation with Nathan Wade and, and what's happening in You're investigating in Nathan Wade, right? Oh yeah, we've we've sent uh, uh, we've we've contacted Mr. Wade asking for information. Uh, we want to know who he talked to in the White House, who he talked to with the January Sixth Committee, what kind of documents they exchanged, who he talked to in the Justice Department, what kind of documents they've exchanged there, and information. So we've asked we've asked all that, um, and and some other things that I can't get into right, right yet. But um, so we're looking at that. But but I think I think you're right. The one that the one that's probably the the troubling one is Jack Smith's investigation in uh, in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he where that that one relates to January sixth. I think the one in Miami. I mean, come on, the, the, the classified documents after what Biden classified document situation. And, and remember, President Trump was actually the commander in chief. Joe Biden wasn't when he had his concerns with classified information. So I do think that's the one that that there's somewhat of a concern. Um, not not because President Trump did anything wrong, just because of the nature of what you described, uh, Jack Smith, the jury pool, and everything else in D.C. So. We'll just have to have to see. But I, again, I think the American people are smart. They have common sense and they see it all for what it truly is, which is uh, just just harassment of President Trump. And he's he's on every almost in every speech. He says they're they're coming after me because I'm fighting for you. And last week when we were out in, in Iowa, he even changed that line. I thought it was better. He said they're coming after my freedom because I'm fighting for yours. That and is nice. the country, I think, understands that. 
Yeah, that is that is strong messaging. I like that. Um, the uh, uh, a judge in Maine, a federal judge in Maine, I guess, has uh, basically kicked the Secretary of State's belt blocking of President Trump from that ballot, saying, "Let's wait and see what the Supreme Court does with Colorado, because then the, basically that's going to kind of blanket yeah. our state too, and probably all fifteen or so that are trying to keep keep him off the ballot." Do you have any idea when the Supreme Court is going to hear that and when they're going to make that decision with the clock ticking the way I- that it is? I don't, but I think it's, you know, it's got to be pretty soon. Um, I mean, we're getting to where we're, you know, we're already, you know, primary ballots and, and things are happening uh, starting tomorrow uh, with, with the presidential race. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think, I, I just think that's ridiculous. But I think it also, to this, to this sentiment that the, the country now, I think, fully understands is, is the, the, the attacks on President Trump, the weaponization of government, because, you know, the long history is, they spied on his campaign. Then it was a two-and-a-half-year Mueller investigation, $30 million, 19 lawyers, 40 agents, all investigating found nothing. Then it was right into impeachment. Then it was all these other investigations with Bragg and Willis at the, at the state level. It was then a raid on his home by, by Jack Smith, uh, the federal government. Then Jack Smith becomes a, uh, the special counsel. And then there's the indictments, all four indictments that happened. And now, of course, it's the 14th Amendment. It's like, when does that they're never going to stop? It's just the nature of the left today. Um, and I, again, I think the country fully understands that. And it's, it's why you see President Trump's numbers just continue to climb. And he gets, you know, he got 51% for goodness sake in Iowa. And he's going to win big tomorrow in New, in New Hampshire, I believe. So, um, well, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. That's very well said. And uh, what has been thrown at him has literally never happened before in the history of American politics. And God willing, it has never done. Even a Democrat. I hope nobody ever has to be treated the way he has been treated in this entire thing. And it's one of the reasons I think people are so quick to support him and surge uh, him so that he can uh, uh, take what is rightfully his. And that is the second term that he was denied. Last question for you, sir. I didn't ask you about it when you did it, but tonight. Is the first um, primary Senate debate uh, here in Ohio. Uh, Bernie Marino and Frank LaRose and Matt Dolan going to do this thing, and you have endorsed Bernie Marino. I didn't ask you about that yep. when you did it. Tell me why. A good man. I think he's the the, the, the more conservative, uh, most conservative in the race, and a successful business guy. And he, Plus, if you've, I'm sure you've uh, talked to Bernie several times like I have. Mm-hmm. You just like the guy. And nothing against, nothing against Mr. Dolan and Mr. LaRose. They're, they're, they're good public servants as well. We got three good guys running. I just, I just think Bernie Marino is the right guy for the job. And look, it's not going to be easy to beat Sherrod Brown. And I think we need, uh, you know, kind of someone new and new and fresh and and, and coming from uh, the business background as to gives us the best opportunity to be chair Brown and take back the United States Senate. Yeah, much as we are all saying with President Trump, all hands on deck now to support President Trump and beat Joe Biden. I think in Ohio we have to have that same all hands on deck approach to get Sherrod Brown out of D.C. So I think uh, well, that's, a strong, that's a strong endorsement. Congressman Jim Jordan, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you, you very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. All right, there you go. Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. Did we run the gamut? I think we covered just about everything uh, that we needed to there. Uh, and we're not even close to being done. It's a busy day today, as noted earlier. Coming up, Reverend Nathan Newman of the Presbyterian Church in America going to be joining us. It's the largest Presbyterian uh, conglomeration, if you will, of churches uh, in the country. They are fighting to save kids, and they are, com- uh, they are asking, if not uh, begging, 
the federal government to do something to stop the mutilation of kids. So that's coming up. Josh Hammer, senior editor-at-large at Newsweek, is coming up. James Fishback, founder of Incubate. The- you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. We'll preserve for our children the last last best hope for man on earth. Isn't that what the uh, great communicator said right there, I think, in that Reagan little bump? We'll preserve for our children the last best hope for man on earth. I think that's what he said. We play that at the top of every second hour of every broadcast, and it uh, it always means something to me whenever I whenever I can listen. And like I said, sometimes I'm just getting ready and it plays and I get going, and other times I listen very closely and it just hits me. And this one hit me because as we continue into hour number two on this day, the twenty second morning of the first month in the year of our Lord twenty twenty four, it strikes me that not only do we have to preserve. Um, for our children, the last best hope for man on earth, but we also have to preserve the children themselves. Otherwise, we'll have no one to gift this glorious earth to. We won't be able to pass it on if our children don't survive. And I, I say that not to be alarmist and not to be hyperbolic, but I say that because the attack on our children right now, through the medical uh, um, industry, if you will, uh, through the pharmaceutical industry, through the educational industry, and through the social media industry. All of these things are teaming up to try to destroy kids through the most barbaric of means, including chemical castration, the kind of thing that's usually reserved for serial rapists and predators. Yeah, the same drugs that are given to serial rapists and predators um, they're being given to, to children who are confused by all of those different organizations I just listed. Then they're giving them cross-sex hormone drugs so that little boys can start to uh, grow breasts and, and, and have higher voices and start to look like girls. And little girls can grow facial hair and, and start to look and act like little boys and young men. And then... An entire industry of Joseph Mengele's are surgically carving these kids up and experimenting on what they can do to recreate things that don't exist or to create things that don't exist and to change their bodies in the, in the futile attempt to change their actual identities. I never thought I'd see a day. I never thought I'd see this day. What are we going to do to preserve the children, not just the earth for the children? Well, I can say this. One thing is that Christians are going to have to enter the fray. It's time to get off the sidelines. It's time to start acting. The United, or excuse me, the Presbyterian Church in America is the largest body of confessional Presbyterian and Reformed churches in North America. More than 1,500 congregations, 374,000 members across the United States and Canada. They're getting off the sidelines. They have written a letter, a petition, if you will, 
to the United States government begging them to intervene and do something to protect these kids. And joining us now to discuss exactly that is um, the Reverend Nathan Newman from the Presbyterian Church in America. Reverend Newman, it's good to have you on our program. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program, Bob. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, we'll talk about your letter in a moment. Um, can I get a reaction to the introduction? Did I did I did I overstate the case? Did I overstate the threat or the danger? Or or am I in the uh, am I over the target? It is more important than ever to protect children from the harms that come from rejecting biological sex. Uh, God created humanity, male and female, and persons who try to change their biological sex are attempting the impossible. And truly, children above all must be protected and given time to progress through natural puberty. And that's what we hope to write in this letter, uh, that the Bible cares for children as a reflection of God's love and asks our leaders humbly to protect them and the welfare of the most vulnerable among us. Yeah, I'm looking at the letter, uh, which is dated yesterday. Uh, It was sent to President Biden, to Speaker Johnson, to Majority Leader Schumer, as well as John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and then Minority Leaders Hakeem Jeffries and Mitch McConnell. Um, Did you write the letter? Did you draft this yourself, Reverend? So I was appointed to a commission. There were six of us who were appointed by the moderator of the 50th General Assembly of the PCA, Uh, and we wrote this letter together using our backgrounds as theologians and medical professionals that was a very collaborative process that was unified from the, from the very beginning. So um, I'm curious, as, I mean, I would imagine that this three-page letter or two-and-a-half-page letter probably could have been two-and-a-half chapters long or even more. Um, how did you decide what you wanted to convey to uh, the president and the other aforementioned governmental leaders here that will actually make them pay attention? Yeah, there's certainly precedent in our denomination in writing humble petitions like this. Uh, this is, I'll say, an incredibly rare mo- moment for the PCA. Uh, in our discussion, it states generally that the church is not to intermeddle with civil affairs, uh, which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary. So the PCA is not going to get involved in every political fight, but there are cases extraordinary that deserve our attention as a denomination. And we voted as a whole at this past General Assembly that this was one of those times that we should address this topic. So, Reverend, uh, I want to quote a couple of lines here and ask you to expound upon them uh, from this humble petition. Uh, As Christians, we recognize that we live in a fallen world in which some children and adults experience a perceived incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of gender. Their feelings of gender incongruence cause severe psychological distress, often associated with debilitating anxiety and, and depression. We uh, genuinely sympathize with the parents of loved ones who experience this kind of suffering. Many of them are our churches. What message do you have for these parents then, or for these younger people about that incongruence when the doctors are saying, well, if you want to ease their anxiety and depression that you speak of here, let them do what they want to do. Let them begin the transition. We know that families are wrestling with uh, the pervasive influence of 
our culture on gender and sex. And I hope that this letter offers biblical clarity for them on the potential harms that come from rejecting biological sex and also winsome understanding that the God who created us loves us and desires us to bear his image faithfully in the world. It's um, it's a lot, obviously, because we are talking about psychological disorders that are being treated with physical uh, transformations, like I was describing in the beginning, starting with the blocking of puberty, continuing through the the hormones, uh, the cross-sex hormones, and then going on all the way to the surgeries. Has that ever been, I mean... I don't need you to be a historian or a scientist to ask you this, but uh, but it's it, it just defies all logic and common sense to treat a psychological disorder with a physical mutilation, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I am a pastor, and so I, I go back, fall back on Scripture always. And the Apostle Paul, he exhorts the young Timothy, and it's as timely as ever, to pray for our leaders, for kings and those who are in authority, who God has set up. Uh, that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. And so the first thing I think for for Christians to do in a moment like this is to pray, is to pray for our leaders who are wrestling with this and leading uh, leading us in in their decisions. Reverend Nathan Newman of the Presbyterian Church in America, do any of your congregation challenge any of the teachings or any of the messaging or any of the scripture you're quoting here and saying, you don't understand my child is going through this right now. Um, I'm praying for my child, but uh, it's not enough. They're suffering and I need to do something here. Uh, do you get any pushback or anybody saying, you know, I need more than prayer right now? There's no disagreement in the PCA that the church is called to love and care for the most vulnerable among us, especially children who are experiencing these things. And our belief is still the same, that God created humanity, male and female. It's foundational to our faith and doctrine. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Uh, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. These are foundational principles and also things that we fall back on. God says, don't uh, let the children come to him. Uh, we should not hinder them, and that's why we're called to to care for and protect them, and that's why we wrote this letter. Uh, I want to go back to the letter and read a couple of lines again for our listeners to know exactly what you are saying to our uh, our governmental leaders and what you're asking them to do. Experts disagree on the nature and causes of gender dysphoria. Persons who try to change their biological sex through the process of transitioning, including psychotherapy, lifelong hormonal treatments, and extensive non-genital and genital surgeries, are attempting the impossible. Um, the science scientists would say it's not impossible and that there are examples of gender reassignment that have been done in those surgeries that were successful. Um, what would you say to those folks? Yeah, one of the paragraphs I think that stood out the most to me, and this is what we heard from leaders and experts in our denomination, is that on the whole, children, they don't have the the minds yet, the, the personality to make these irreversible decisions. And on the whole, they should be given time to accept their biological sex. That happens in the majority of teens who are allowed to progress through natural puberty. And I think we're beginning to see that over in Europe. Some of these uh, more recent studies show that that is the case. If we are protecting children and allowing them to uh, 
premature puberty, uh, they're choosing their biological sex. That's God's design for them. Yeah, you're exactly right. They are finding that out in in Europe and uh, in in a lot of other places. But for some reason, we seem very, very reticent to accepting that reality. You you and your colleagues who put this letter together uh, reference teenage girls being the most susceptible, at least statistically speaking. They're the ones most susceptible to rapid onset gender dysphoria. Can you define that? Yeah, we, I mean, I see it. I'm a dad of two girls. We see the pressure of social media and the effects of our COVID-19 policies on our children across the United States. And there has been a rapid rise in um, girls, especially identifying as a gender other than the gender of their birth. And you have to ask yourself, why? What is, what is happening in our moment, in our culture that is leading our children to, to consider these these things. And that's why we wrote this letter, because we wanted to help protect children and to teach parents as well how God has designed them as male and female uh, so that we can care for them uh, as they grow into maturity. We are talking with the Reverend Nathan Newman from the Presbyterian Church in America, PBA, and they wrote a letter to the president and to several of our other uh, federal government leaders, including uh, Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court, uh, essentially demanding some kind of action. Um, you, you talk about prayer. You talk about, and you're right, by the way, about rapid onset gender dysphoria. I don't even think it's true gender dysphoria. I think it's peer pressure, and I think it's confused kids saying, "I want to be popular, and I want to, I want to be special like all these other people are, and I don't want to be." ostracized by my friends who are doing this so i think they join the crowd and follow like willing sheep i think that's a part of it but the other part of this and i said this in the introduction of our conversation is the medical uh industrial complex and the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry um they are essentially casting aside all of their previous commitments and dedications and oaths to do no harm, but to actually try to help people by by creating lifelong patients like that. You even address that in the letter, too, don't you? Yeah, we did. And there certainly are um, more statements that have been issued by some of these organizations seeking to clarify that even generally, uh, even they say that this is not what they recommend for the majority of children. Uh, and that's because it is uh, clearly a divine uh, design that children are born, all persons are born, male and female. So uh, when they're trying to wrestle with their gender, we just are praying that they will take the time to consider the way that God has has created them. Yeah. Um, Your close, Reverend Newman, of the letter uh, says, we condemn the practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment, especially for minor or of minors, and we humbly petition you to protect the lives and welfare of minor children. Um, what does that look like? What does protection of the lives of, uh, and welfare of minor children? In other words, what specifically are you asking these governmental leaders to do? Yeah, the first thing, like I said, for those government leaders themselves who are Christians is to pray. Uh, the second certainly is that our people should vote their conscience. Uh, and the third thing I would say that we're called to do is to love love our neighbor. And in all of those things, we're called to honor Jesus in all that we do or say. Uh, the church is called to love and care for the most vulnerable among us. 
and we want to protect children from harms caused by these gender transition efforts. So we are urging our government leaders to take decisive and compassionate actions that address these harmful practices of rejecting biological sex and ensure the well-being of the next generation. Well, that is uh, that is exactly what has to happen, and I hope that there are other churches and other denominations of Christians, and quite frankly, everybody that cares about kids, they will all join the call here. And as I say, get involved. We, I think, a lot of us, and you tell me if you agree with this, Reverend. Since this um, this this movement, if you will, this transing of America picked up such steam in the last few years, where it's just literally full speed ahead, and it's uh, you know pronoun games and keeping parents out of the loop and all of these things. A lot of us, I think, have just been hoping that well, this this will peter out sooner rather than later. You know, they'll get tired of this thing, and this will just be a a blip on the radar. Uh, they're waiting for it to end, and I don't think we can wait for this to end. I think something needs to be done, uh, and action needs to be taken. And as I say, people need to get off of the sidelines in the in the faith community like yourself and elsewhere. Would you agree? Children are hurt when physicians re- reject biological sex, and it is time to put a stop to these harmful practices. In whatever ways we can, as a denomination, encourage our, our leaders some of whom attend our churches, to lead in these efforts, we will continue to do. Well, I'm glad that you are doing it. Uh, I want to say thank you to you and your colleagues at the PBA, the Presbyterian Church Presbyterian Church in America. Thank you for sending this. Thank you for speaking out. I hope you reach a lot more uh, ears and eyes and uh, minds and uh, let them know how extraordinarily important it is to do what you have done here. Get out into the, uh, into the ears of the... Uh, uh, elected officials that make policy and establish laws so that we can indeed protect these kids from some of the very evil um, machinations uh, that uh, that are being aimed at them right now. So, uh, Reverend Nathan Newman, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Bob. And if I might say, people can find this letter on the PCA's digital magazine website, byfaithonline.com. The letter is the lead story this morning. I would encourage people, if they're able, to go and read the leader, the letter for themselves. Can you read that website again, please? Yeah, byfaithonline.com. Byfaithonline.com. Terrific. Uh, Reverend Newman, thank you again. Thank you. All right, there you go. It is, uh, it's a very, very important letter. And like I said, I think it needs to be distributed. And any, you know, I'm going to preach here for a second, not on faith because I'm not qualified, but I'm going to preach about what I do. Um, People ask me all the time, and not ask me, but a lot of people will say to me, you know, thank you for doing what you do to get the message out there, and thank you for fighting for liberty. I hear this at speeches that I give and various, you know, other places where I'm uh, I'm doing public work, and people will thank me for this. And I always say, don't thank me, just join me. If you don't share the message, message and the information that I'm gathering and that I'm studying and that I'm researching and uh, inter- questions that I'm asking of my interview guests so that we can get real answers with real solutions, if you don't share them with other people, they're kind of useless. You know, uh, I, I love having a vast listening audience of people who understand what I'm saying, but I, everybody can't listen to me. Everybody doesn't listen to me, but they may listen to you. Same thing here. The PBA... Uh, or PCA, rather, the Presbyterian Church of America, wrote this letter and sent it to the government officials, and that can't be where it ends. you got to share it. 
share the same messaging within it with people in your email list. People with, you know, go to that link that he just said by faith. Uh, go to the link, go to the page, and share it with other people. When people dedicate themselves to joining a cause, that's the only way we can get anything actually done. Don't just say, yeah, I agree, turn off the radio and go on about your day. Don't just say, I agree, I read the letter, and then just, you know, X out of the uh, that, that, that you know window on your internet and go on about your way. Send it on to somebody else. That's the way it works. All right. We'll get a time out here at the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we're going to talk to one of my favorite people to talk to, Josh Hammer, senior editor-at-large uh, with Newsweek, syndicated host of The Josh Hammer Show, and strong supporter of Ron DeSantis for president. We shared that in common, Josh and I. He is out now with his reaction to DeSantis's um, decision to suspend. All right, 1034, Always Right Radio and AM 1420, the answer on a very, very busy Monday. Still a frigid Monday, by the way. Hold on, let me have a look see real quick here. Wow, that can't be right. It's showing twenty four on my uh on my watch right now, but I think with the wind chill it's probably closer to like nine or ten or eleven or somewhere in that neighborhood. But uh at any rate, we are we are on fire on the program today. Very, very good stuff. Uh thank you so much to the Reverend. Thank you to Congressman Jim Jordan. And now let's bring on Josh Hammer, senior editor at large at Newsweek, the syndicated host of the Josh Hammer Show. He has been one of the strongest supporters of Ron DeSantis in the primary season. Now he is ready to move on. Let's uh, welcome into the program. Josh, thank you for joining us again here in Cleveland. How are you? Bob, I'm doing all right. It's always a pleasure to join you. Were you disappointed yesterday? Yeah, of course. Uh, of course. Look, I, you know, I mean, I mean, this is all a matter of public record. I mean, there's that. There's that photo that gained a lot of traction on Twitter, especially from some people in Trump world of, you know, the seven, eight of us or so, primarily from Florida, who visited the governor at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee. That was over two years ago now. So it's been it's, it's been it's been a long road, I guess, is what I'm trying to say there. I, I've been, you know, part and parcel of, of this journey, gone to know the governor and the first lady decently well. And I continue to think the world of them. So it's it's the end of the road for now. The silver lining for me, though, Bob, as a Floridian is that now Ron gets to come back to Tallahassee as we get into high gear in our legislative session here. And hopefully he will continue to do what he does best, which is command the reins of the nation's third largest state and continue to guide it in a very dynamic and unabashedly conservative direction. So that is a silver lining. That's kind of what I take solace in. And it's a very good thing to take solace in. But, you know, as you know, Bob, I think he really had no choice, uh, unfortunately, after the Iowa caucuses last Monday. Oh, I, I completely agree. I said it last week after that. I said now it's really a matter of when, not if, uh, it becomes time to coalesce around Donald Trump. Is it immediate or should he wait a little while? Because there was a, you know, there was a a, a thought that given the legal ramp, you know trouble that the president, former president, is in. And we all we don't have to agree with it. We don't. We know it's lawfare. We know this is political persecution, not actual criminal prosecution for the purposes of of power. But it is what it is. They have these trials against him. And in the event that he cannot serve, in the event that for whatever reason he cannot, let's say the Supreme Court throws a wild curveball and says, yeah, we agree, insurrection grounds are warranted here and he can't be on the ballot in one or two or 15 states. Somebody needs to be in the bullpen ready to go, and maybe you stay in the race until you get all of that figured out, at least, you know, through Super Tuesday. Any thoughts uh, on, uh, from you on that? So I was discussing this 
on air actually on Friday with Steve Dace out in Iowa. Steve's also been a huge supporter of Governor Sanders' campaign with him out in Iowa before the caucuses. And Steve raised this exact question to me. And, and, and my response is the timeline just doesn't make sense. So if, if you actually look at the, at, the, at the four criminal trials for Trump, you know, uh, trial takes a long time, Bob. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer as well. I clerked on a federal appeals court. I've dealt with a lot of criminal cases. These, t- these things take a very long time. I, I, I think from the prosecutor's perspective, so that would be Jack Smith, the federal special counsel for the cases in Florida and D.C., Fonnie Wilson in Georgia, and Alvin Bragg in the most frivolous of the cases up in New York City. You know, I think any of them would be very, very lucky to get any kind of verdict this calendar year in any of those four cases. They're going to be pushing as hard as possible to get those verdicts before the election. But at a bare minimum, I, I would just be utterly flabbergasted if we would get any kind of serious news on any of this stuff before the actual Republican National Convention in July. The, the only possibility, which, which you did mention there, would be that the U.S. Supreme Court could p- potentially rule unfavorably when it comes to the question of ballot access, when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We see Colorado and Maine dealing with that right now. I, I frankly feel very confident in that case from Donald Trump's perspective. I think that there are at least seven votes of the, of the nine justices that will rule in his favor there. I, I think that the argument against him is so frivolous that even Elena Kagan, who's one of the stalwart liberal justices, She's the more reasonable of the three. I feel relatively confident in predicting that even she would side with the other six right of center colleagues of hers when it comes to the question of ballot access. And it actually wouldn't even shock me if we're a 9-0 unanimous decision. I, I think it is a seriously frivolous argument, and it's not something that I would be really concerned about if I were one of Donald Trump's lawyers. Yeah, I concur. Uh, I think that's the case, too. Uh, but like I said, we're trying to figure out if there was any reason for him to stay in, which obviously they must feel the same way. We're talking to Josh Hammer, senior editor-at-large at Newsweek and the host of The Josh Hammer Show. Um, when does Nikki Haley get that message after South Carolina? I guess from her perspective, Bob, I don't really see. I mean, now that she's got the one-on-one matchup that she wanted, there's no harm in not staying in at least until her home state of South Carolina. I mean, she's going to get blown out there for sure. But if she thinks that there's any chance whatsoever to do something in her home state, then it probably makes some sense to stay in until then. She's probably going to lose in New Hampshire by at least 15 to 20 points. But, you know, if she cracks 40 percent, if she gets... 35, 40% of the vote in New Hampshire, then it's reasonable enough for her to stay in through her home state. The question for Nikki Haley is, what do you want? I mean, you can't be delusional enough to think that you're actually going to win this thing. So what is it that you actually want? And I guess from her perspective, trying to kind of 4D chess this thing and and think it through in real time with you, you know, if she wants to be vice president of of the United States, then if she can just inflict a little more damage monetarily on the Trump campaign, make them throw down a little more expenditures, then that makes the idea of, you know, tapping her as the vice presidential nominee in exchange for dropping out of the race much more enticing. And the reason that Trump would do that is not necessarily because they're ideologically aligned. They're, they're really not. But Nikki Haley has access to a lot of very wealthy donors, especially in the hedge fund, private equity, Wall Street universe. And Trump, if there's one thing that he desperately needs as he gears up for this fight against Joe Biden this fall, Bob, he really needs money. 
because he is being bled dry with all of these trials, not just the criminal prosecutions, by the way, but all sorts of civil lawsuits as well. The E. Jean Carroll defamation case, this ridiculous fraud trial with Tish James, the attorney general of New York State. So he needs cash. His legal bills are ridiculously high, and Nikki Haley can potentially provide him cash. It's a really interesting prospect. Um, a lot of I hate talking about things like this, this Josh, but <clears throat> people have said it and speculated about it that if Nikki Haley were to actually be his number two, uh, President Trump better triple the Secret Service because because somebody is going to try to take him out, somebody on the left, because they feel like Nikki Haley being president would be exactly what they want, because she is very, I don't want to say she's very much like them, but she is certainly a far cry from Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump when it comes to conservative credentials, that she is maybe, you know, in this whole thing from the left to try to provide some sort of balance to Donald Trump. What do you think? I, I don't know what exactly to make of Nikki Haley. I, and I've reviewed her gubernatorial record in South Carolina fairly closely. I, I think that she is a genuine, true believer when it comes to kind of some older Republican cliches about slashing government and slashing regulations and cutting taxes. But, you know, even that, I have to caveat it by saying that she is a, a creature of cronyism. So if you look at her at her state of South Carolina, a lot of hostile foreign entities have made serious inroads in the Palmetto State, in the state of South Carolina. China actually has a lot of infrastructure in South Carolina and Qatar, actually. Qatar, which is the leading bankroller of Hamas. That's where the Hamas leadership lives. They live in Doha, Qatar. Qatar has a ton of financial and intelligence assets actually sprinkled there in South Carolina. Nikki Haley, unfortunately, has has been part of the problem there back when she was governor. So I, I'm not entirely sure exactly what motivates her. Again, I think she vaguely believes in, in certain uh, tropes or pablum, you might say, about slashing government and, and cutting taxes. But beyond that, it's hard to figure out exactly what it is she stands for. Her answer when it came to abortion in, in the presidential primary debate was thoroughly uninspiring, I, I would say, from the perspective of a, of a pro-lifer like myself. Uh, her foreign policy is definitely a throwback to the to the to the party of George W. Bush and, and John McCain. I don't think you see a whole lot of enthusiasm for that in, in the voting base there. But uh, you know, look, she she ultimately is better than a Democrat. I think we can probably agree on that. Yeah, well, I, absolutely, no question about that. But again, the question is, is who do Democrats prefer? And if uh, if she was on number two on the ticket and number one was Donald J. Trump, you would think they couldn't wait to get her to elevate to that spot because it would be sure. much more much more preferable. Let's talk about the DeSantis voter now that Governor DeSantis dropped yesterday. There, you know, you can you can find whatever you want online, and and Twitter is not real life, but. It can give us at least a, you know, it can be a barometer somewhat. For the last several months, I have seen scores of MAGA Trump supporters excoriating DeSantis supporters and vice versa. Um, and some have said this means they're never going to come together when, when a nominee is chosen. Well, it is obviously going to be Donald Trump now that he is out. Do you see DeSantis voters kind of swallowing their pride and saying, okay, uh, I'll do it? Or do you see them holding firm and saying, no, I really wanted DeSantis because Trump is not what I want in a president. I'm not going to do it. I'll sit it out and just vote Republican down ballot. What do you think is going to happen with the majority of DeSantis's voters? I, I would predict, Bob, that most people who prefer to stand in the primaries will do what I have said repeatedly I'm going to do, which is vote for Donald Trump and, and not think particularly hard about doing so. There's a huge difference in my estimation 
between the calculus back in 2016 and the calculus in 2024. So going going back to 2016, I, I was personally all in for Ted Cruz that primary cycle, and you know that, that that was a different consideration to actually then pull the lever for Trump that fall because there was no record. I mean, there right. was no track record whatsoever of, of Donald Trump as president. He was talking, he was joking, or maybe he was not joking, as the case may be, about nominating his sister, his pro-abortion sister, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there, there were all sorts of substantive red flags or, or causes for concern, and there was all sorts of the same personal pettiness and nastiness that primary cycle as well. I remember very well when there was that Roger Stone orchestrated hit piece in the National Enquirer in March 2016 about Ted Cruz allegedly having these affairs. It was total nonsense. So very similar tactics. The, the difference, as I just intimated, is that we now have a track record, and I think that Donald Trump grossly mishandled COVID. I think that he was negligent as well when it came to the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests of 2020. The final year of his presidency was essentially a wash, um, with perhaps the glaring exception, by the way, of the Abraham Accord peace agreements in the Middle East, which all happened during his final year. So that was the one silver lining. But for the most part, the first three years of his presidency were, were very effective. The economy was rocking. The world stage was very, very stable. The world was not on fire. The federal judiciary was genuinely transformed. I know that firsthand because I clerked on the appeals court for a Trump nominee. I literally saw the change on that very court in real time as the nominees came in. So I think most people will approach this similarly. You know, not everyone will. You know, everyone will have to make up his or her own mind. I understand that the independent bid of RFK Jr. is probably enticing for some, especially for those who are particularly hardcore on the COVID-19 issues. I, I understand that. I have some pushback to, to folks who would take that route, but I don't, I don't judge them personally, that's for sure. We're talking to Josh Hammer, who is the senior editor-at-large at Newsweek and a syndicated host of the Josh, Josh Hammer Show. President Trump's former um, <clears throat> press secretary, Kelly McEnany, said on TV over the weekend that um, she believes, much as you do, that the Santos voters are going to come over pretty much you know, en masse uh, because they tend to be, quote, traditional conservative persons of faith, and that naturally translates over to Donald Trump. But she said, quote, where I think his challenge is, both here and going forward in the general, is winning over the Haley voter, winning over the establishment voter, the independent, which is why this vice presidential pick is so important. He needs to bring in someone who's going to bring in that block because I believe the conservatives, the base, they're going to come home, show up, rain or shine. But you need the independent and then the suburban women. You need that tone. So that being said, first of all, you can respond to it for what it is, but then what do you think he's looking for in a vice presidential candidate? Do you think it will be a female? It's tough to say. I mean, I learned a long time ago, Bob, to not try to think about what is going on in Donald Trump's mind. I understand the appeal of taking a woman, but I just as easily see, or at least I at least can easily foresee Donald Trump being told that by his advisors and then doubling down in the complete opposite direction. Obviously, Mike Pence was the furthest thing from a woman or some sort of identity politics pick. I mean, he was kind of the stereotypical white man, the humble white man from the Midwest, right? So, if you, I mean, if you look at the folks who are getting thrown about right now, you have you have Christy Nome, you have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you do have Congresswoman Elise Stefanik in upstate New York. You also have J.D. Zan from your state who's getting a lot of, of, of talk, a lot of possible speculation. Um, a name that a friend of mine threw out there over the weekend, which I hadn't really thought about, but I actually think could make a lot of sense, 
is actually Lee Zeldin, the former congressman of New York. You know, he, he, he ran for governor in 2022, and he, he almost delivered New York State. You know, that race for governor in New York State was very close for New York State standards. The final margin was 5 to 6% or so. So if you kind of combine that with the fact that Donald Trump has clear and obvious ties to New York, that that's really interesting. That's a tantalizing possibility, the idea that New York State – could potentially in play. I mean, it, it's probably fool's gold. I wouldn't want to bet the ranch on it or anything like that. But I, I predict that the Trump campaign will ultimately make this decision not necessarily based on something like identity politics. But if there's one thing that the Trump camp values above all, Bob, and they've made this very clear time and time again ever since the first time he came down that escalator in the summer of 2015, they value loyalty. They want someone who has been a day one or day true day two Trump supporter, someone who has hit the campaign trail vociferously, unapologetically, unequivocally for Donald Trump. And I think that ultimately is how they probably will make their pick. So does that rule out former uh, opponents like Vivek and Tim Scott? I think it probably does. Uh, I mean, Tim Scott, I think, is a bad pick for for many reasons. If you're, if you're going to pick someone from the more corporatist wing of the Republican Party, you might as well go with Nikki Haley because she has access to and many more donors that could be potentially useful for Donald Trump when it comes to funding the legal bills and the lawsuits. So Tim Scott makes really, uh, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Vivek, I mean, my, my, my personal thoughts on Vivek Ramaswamy are very well documented. I, I, I think that it, that it would be extremely foolish uh, for him to pick Vivek. The man obviously has no experience whatsoever. Generally, with the vice presidential pick, you're, you're trying to reassure Someone. I mean, you're trying to reassure maybe the suburban voters. Maybe you're trying to pick up a key state. That was kind of the Lee Zeldin, New York State thing that we just discussed. But they provide nothing whatsoever. I mean, maybe maybe he fires up a tiny sliver of, of the very online conservative Twitter base. But I mean, that's not that's not a serious political calculation. It, it does seem like Vivek is likely to be a a a. a a, a forward-facing surrogate for the campaign, and I predict he probably will have a role to play in the second Trump term if he does win against Biden this fall, but I, I just don't see him being the vice presidential pick. Yeah, I uh, I think young voters, though, gravitated toward him in this uh, in this primary. You know, obviously only got 8% in Iowa, but, uh, you know, overall, I just think he really kind of moves the needle a lot with younger voters, and I wonder how much that's going to play uh, into this whole thing. And same thing with Tim Scott with black voters. And, in fact, we'll kind of close with this. Uh, minority voters, according to the latest, was it ABC last week? You probably see the same polls I do. I think it was ABC's. Um, Joe Biden's in serious trouble with black voters and with Hispanic voters. Um, he is down some, I don't know, 20 points or whatever it was from whatever the number of black voters he got in uh, uh, in uh, 2020 to where he is now. And he's actually losing to Trump with Hispanic voters by five points. Now, obviously, these people haven't cast ballots yet. These are just polls. But that's got to be very alarming to them. Uh, how much of that do you think will play into any pick he makes for a vice president? If I were the Democrat, I would be utterly terrified of the metrics that you just showed. I mean, there's been a lot of polling. That shows not just Hispanics and, and, and uh, in, you know, particularly Hispanics, but to a lesser extent, blacks going wobbly on Joe Biden. But the 18 to 35 demographic in general looks like it's a toss up right now. I mean, close to a 50 50 toss up for Biden and for Trump. It, it, if that comes anywhere close to holding and there's a million variables, so it's hard to confidently predict one way or the other whether it will. But if that comes anywhere close to holding, I think it's very, very difficult 
to foresee Joe Biden winning this thing comfortably. Maybe he could eke it out in a swing state or two and therefore catch the presidency. But looking at the polling that you just referenced, and especially that 18 to 35 demographic polling, I, I'm feeling I'm feeling cautiously optimistic at this precise moment about Donald Trump's chances. And yeah, you might you can possibly foresee someone in Trump's inner circle saying, oh, you should pick X, Y, Z candidates to try to make sure that you get the Hispanic vote. But, you know, with the, with the Hispanic vote in particular, Bob, especially living here in Florida, I see a lot of this firsthand. It's, it's something of a misnomer. You know, the, the word Hispanic is a very, very broad overgeneralization. And the idea that you might pick, you know, let's say it's a Cuban person for your vice president in order to shore up the vote with the Mexicans in South Texas, it, it, it's, it's patently offensive, frankly. And that's just not how voters think. And I, I have to think that that sort of logic will ultimately prevail in Trump world when it comes to picking a vice president. Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting whether you whether you look at the demographics that we're discussing or just the overall thirty one percent thirty one percent the lowest any president has received in the last fifteen years thirty one percent is the Colonel Poover rating for Joe Biden. Do you think Josh Hammer he makes it there? I mean, there's a lot of people still mumbling about Michelle Obama starting to make a few comments here and there. She's making some appearances. She's talking about how scared she is and so forth. And everybody knows what a Michelle Obama, Obama last-minute candidacy would mean, and that would, of course, would be the third and fourth terms of Barack Obama. What are your thoughts on whether or not Joe gets there? Uh, I, I have long been of the opinion that Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. You know, we there's a lot of people in our world who work in, right-of-center media who are predicting that they're going to swap out Biden either at the convention or perhaps thereafter, whether it'll be Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom, Jared Paulus out in Colorado, even get some attention sometimes. Michelle Obama certainly has gotten attention for many years now. I I, I just don't see it. Joe Joe Biden first got to Washington, D.C. a half century ago in the early 1970s. He has wanted to be president of the United States his entire life. He first ran in 1988. He's ran multiple times since then. He finally got it. It's a tale of the dog who, who was chasing who was chasing the postman, and he, and he finally manages to, to, to catch him. So, you know, good luck talking him down from actually running again. So the only way that I could possibly foresee Joe Biden not doing it, given what I just said, is, and this is getting a little devious and possibly even a little quasi-conspiratorial, but, you know, you could see someone in, let's call it Clinton world, trying to pull a Jeffrey Epstein, right? I mean, make Joe Biden, who's already who's already falling down a lot of sets of stairs, you know, make him fall down one set of stairs too many. But I, I look, I mean, I'm sure that's, that's, that's interesting fodder for some people on Reddit on, and on Twitter, but I'm not going to predict it's going to happen or anything. Michelle Obama certainly would be a formidable candidate, but from my estimation, Bob, I think that Barack Obama has largely been running a shadow president for the past three to four years anyway. So I think I the Obamas, I, I think the Obamas are, are calling a lot of the very important shots right now when it comes to America's domestic and foreign policy. So surely they would prefer to keep that arrangement rather than to risk throwing out Michelle to the national audience and all the, all the downside risks that that entails. Wouldn't you rather just stay private while getting all the public power anyway? So that's that's kind of what I think about that.
Well, yeah, you might be right, but I think that that adage about absolute power corrupting absolutely is true. And I think he wants credit, and I think she wants credit, and I think they want to do what the Clintons had planned to do back in the uh, you know before uh, you know nineteen ninety two. They planned on sixteen years, eight for each of them. And I think now the Obamas might be able uh, to think, hey, they couldn't get that done, but we sure as heck can. Look at what we have as an incumbent right now. We can slide Michelle in there very easily. We each get our eight, and we really build this country into what we want it to be. But. That is uh, that is for down the road. Uh, Josh Hammer, thank you for the insight on uh, Governor DeSantis's drop. We certainly appreciate that very much, and we'll talk to you throughout this season as we continue. Thank you, sir. You bet. Anytime, Bob. All right. That's Josh Hammer, senior editor at Newsweek uh, and uh, also a syndicated uh, radio host. We're going to talk to James Fishback, the founder of Incubate Debate, about book banning. What books are really being banned? This- we're going to talk about something imp- more, well, as important, maybe more important, because every kid has... Uh, a reading list for their various uh, classes and schools uh, all across this country. And the subject of what is appropriate for what kids has become, uh, it's a flashpoint, I suppose, right now in our educational culture. The left likes to say that those of us who don't think pornography belongs in schools are trying to, quote, ban books, ban certain books. Well, what James Fishback has done here is done a little bit of research that nobody else has been willing to do. Let's dig into it. Let's find out what books are truly being banned. He wrote a phenomenal piece, which I highly recommend, which we'll tweet out after the interview uh, for the free press. And uh, it's the truth about banned book. James Fish Books. James Fishbacks. Welcome back. Jeez, I got all these plurals going on. Banned books. James, which sounds plural, and Fishback, which is not. James Fishback. Welcome back. It's good to have you. How are you? Well, Bob, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. This is such a fantastic piece. I've never thought about it in these terms. We keep hearing the left saying that that the pearl clutchers on the right are the ones who are trying to ban books because of our bigotry, because of our phobias, because of our is because of our isms, and so forth. And there are things that we are trying to you know remove from the bookshelves, particularly because of their age inappropriateness when it comes to some of the graphic literature that is out there. But there's so much more when it comes to the decisions that librarians and school boards make about what they stock and they make available to our kids. I don't think anybody's done this before you. So lay it out for us, James Fishback. What did you find about um, about the types of choices that are being made uh, that our kids have uh, in, in schools across this country? Absolutely, Bob. You know, we've heard nonstop for the last couple of years about the book bans, how they're an assault on democracy, how students are suffering emotional trauma at the hands of them. And I decided to look at it for a second and say, how much truth is there to this? I mean, we've heard a lot about gender queer and flamer and all of these sexually explicit books. But let's just take for a second the availability of non-progressive books available to public school students all over the country. And this matters in a much bigger way to tell you the truth than high school debate, because not everybody does high school debate, but everybody goes to high school. And so let's just start with some of the high-level facts. As, as we learned from the show Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. And so here are just the facts, Bob. 57% of the school districts that I surveyed carried Vice President Harris's memoir. 6% carry Vice President Pence's. 40% carry a book by Bernie Sanders, his most recent book. 0% carry Vivek Ramaswamy's most recent book. 0% carry Ron DeSantis's most recent book. 0% 
Carrie Nikki Haley's most recent book, 0% Carrie Tim Scott's most recent book. How about that book, How to Be an Anti-Racist? Well, 42% of America's public school libraries carry that book, but only 3% carry the book Woke Racism, which credibly refutes the religious zealotry of Ibram X. Kendi when he says things like the only answer to discrimination is reverse discrimination. And so what we have before us is a one-sided ideological monopoly that is shoving progressive orthodoxy into the mouths of young Americans while depriving them of viewpoint diversity, conservative voices, conservative ideas, conservative authors. This is the literal definition of a ban. It is a book ban. What does the word ban mean? It means to forbid. It means to proscribe. It means to disallow. Young Americans, black, white, rural, urban, rich, poor, if they go to public schools, Bob, they cannot access books from Thomas Sowell, from Vivek Ramaswamy, from Governor DeSantis. Any books that are positive about President Trump, forget about it. No wonder only 16% of Americans Young Americans are proud to be American. They don't have access to honest books. No wonder 75% of young Americans say they would never date a Republican. They don't have books that even talk positively about Republicans. This is a massive, massive issue, and I was honored to be able to publish this study in the free press. It is... um... It is so in-depth, I want people to understand, uh, they have to read this. You're giving us the thumbnail sketch because it's a radio interview, but we, we really, I want people to see this and I want people to share this. I want them to copy the link and they share, share it to everybody they can on their socials or on their email lists, particularly because of some of the names and some of the titles of the books that you are talking about that are readily available in, this, uh, you know, in, in uh, high schools around, around this country. So in addition to doing the percentages and doing the research that you've done here, James, did you talk to anybody? Did you talk to any? I mean, I know you quote some moms here in this uh, yeah. in, in the in the article. Did you talk to any librarians, school board members, school administrators or anybody to say what and why are the are things the way they are in terms of the imbalance? It's a, it's a great question. I did speak with many librarians, school board members, students and parents as I was thinking about this piece. I didn't bring up so much of their perspective in this piece, but be prepared to look up for a follow-up piece here in the near future about what it is that motivates and what are actually the mechanisms that are leading to the censorship. What I will say is you, you talk about this North Carolina mom. Her name is Katie Gates. She went to a school board meeting in January of 2022 to complain about the book Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. It's by Jason Reynolds and Abram Kendi. His real name is Henry Rogers, but that's besides the point. And so she went to the school board meeting complaining that the book contained Marxist ideology in an inaccurate reframing of history. And you know what? Katie is absolutely right. This is a book, Bob, that says that law and order, the phrase law and order, we heard from President Reagan oftentimes and President Nixon. We heard that great intro. It's very motivating, by the way, coming into the third hour of your show. They say that law and order is a racial slur and, quote, the only thing extraordinary about white people is that they think something is extraordinary about white people. So this is what they stock our libraries with. This is what they force feed our kids with. But guess what? I've read this book twice. It's deeply flawed. I am still a free speech absolutist. I'm OK if this book is on the high school shelf, but I'm only OK if it's on the shelf so long as we have someone like Thomas Sowell or John Porter 
or Mike Pence or Vivek Ramaswamy offering them an alternative viewpoint to these broken ideas. And so when it comes to banned books, as long as a book is not sexually explicit or pornographic in nature, which, by the way, is a lot of these LGBTQ books, I'm all for them staying on the shelves so long as there is a range of viewpoints. What we need to do is we need to stop teaching kids what to think, teach them how to think, and that means putting as many perspectives in front of them as possible and letting them, as Vivek says, letting them find truth. I think I finally found something with which I can disagree with here um, from you, James. We're talking to James Fishback, the founder of Incubate Debate, this fantastic piece that he has written, The Truth About Banned Books, is uh, at the free, pe- free press, thefp.com, and I'll send a link out on my socials. You can follow James. That's even better uh, on his social media as well. But um, I'm not okay with pornographic literature, and particularly literature that is accompanied by pornographic illustrations being on these on these shelves, even if there are other opportunities for people to choose something else as well. In other words, oh, just, I wouldn't want to... Just to clarify, Bob, I said that was the exception. That those are oh. the only books I would not allow. I'm not sure if... Uh, oh, if I, 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 I misunderstood well you enough. when you... Yeah, I'm sorry. When you said I'm a free speech absolutist, and then, you know, I, I thought you were yeah. saying those things are okay. Because nobody no, no, no. would be okay with a penthouse... this book in particular. So to this mom, Katie, from, yeah. from North Carolina, she calls this book stamped, which is very clearly an anti-white racist manifesto right. uh, disguised as academia... I said, look, free speech is about protecting bad speech and the speech we vehemently dislike as much as it is about protecting the speech that we do like, which is, for my case, pro-life causes, liberty causes, constitutional causes. Now, the only exception to this rule is pornographic material, Bob. In the same way, we should not allow gender queer and flamer, which includes graphic depictions of oral sex. We should not allow things like sex by Madonna or how to have sex for dummies. It's pretty common sense. And most Americans understand this. But I would just say that viewpoint diversity is the answer to a wide range of books. Got it. Now now, now that we're clear on that, and I appreciate yeah, the, yes, you. Yes, I want to be sure that we're clear, Thank absolutely. You. Now we have to talk about, though, availability versus assigned. And there's a difference there as well. It's one thing to have How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi up there and have it next to the Vivek Ramaswamy book or Created Equal by by Ben Carson or something. And, And, hey, let a kid pick what he wants to pick. But did you delve into what assigned reading there is in you know from these radical I'm sorry to say but they're radical left-wing teachers union members that are out there making decisions you know making them available on the shelves is different than hey you must read this for this class That's a great question and so it's it's hard to systematize it I'll tell you the truth Bob we had to look through a lot of library records I I try to focus my reporting and studying on you know big picture issues As much as I would love to look at the reading list, I can tell you that a lot of the evidence that I've seen there is it does lean progressive. This is where I think parents need to step up and say, look, just because you stock the Vakes book, by the way, Nation of Victims is incredible and everyone should read it. It's an incredible book. Just because you stock it doesn't mean kids will read it. And so here's what I propose. Very simply, if a kid checks out a book like Stamped or like How to Be an Anti-Racist, let's put a little bookmark or a little memo in there that says, you should consider alternative titles that contain contrasting viewpoints and then offer, have that librarian say, hey, I see you're checking out Ibram X. Kendi's book. Why don't you also check out Vivek's book? Chapter six actually refutes a lot of the arguments that Ibram X. Kendi makes or that Jason Reynolds makes in his book. And so I'm also 
against forcing kids to read one thing or the other. But we do have to have a lot of these far-left teachers, and let's be honest, they're far-left teachers in many cases. We have to ensure that students have an equal platform to access these viewpoints. The reality of the situation is so many kids are the way they are because they haven't discovered the other side of an issue. It's amazing. There was a study from Harvard University, and by the way, college kids are less impressionable, Bob, than a high school student. But just to the point, they asked kids at Harvard, do they support the chant to the river to the sea? And 89% of them, after they were shown a map of what would happen to Israel if you actually executed on to the river to the sea— 89% of them, Bob, changed their mind about what it is they supported. And so I think that so much of this woke mind virus, if I can call it that, shout out to Elon, so much of this woke mind virus is rooted in a profound knowledge gap. They don't respect America because they don't know the truth about our founding fathers. They don't know the truth about the sacrifices my grandfather made in World War II and that so many folks made in all of the wars since. They don't know about the great things this country has done for the poor and to liberate others around the world. And so, so much of this abject progressivism is at the hands of not knowing actual facts. Look, if you want to be a progressive, but you have entertained all of the viewpoints, I'm not going to stop you there. My job isn't to red pill anybody. My job with Incubate Debate is to expose as many viewpoints as possible to young Americans from all communities and let them discover what it is they want to believe in. And so we need teachers to step up. We need librarians to step up, offer these books, and give them an equal platform. Very, very well said. We're talking with James Fishback. He is the uh, founder of Incubate Debate. He's online on Twitter at J underscore Fishback, just like it sounds, J underscore Fishback. And you can also make sure to follow on Twitter his uh, website, or excuse me, his uh, company, Incubate Debate, which is at Incubate Debate, also spelled just like it sounds. Um so, James, I'm, I'm looking at it's not just, you know, the, the LGBTQ stuff and it's not just the right and the left stuff, although this is kind of specific to that. But we're talking about, as you point out, um, the Communist Manifesto being yeah. being in 75 percent of the schools in, in certain districts. Capitalism and freedom by Milton Friedman, 8%. Um, you know, you, the 1619 project, 54% of the schools stamped, which you went into great detail on 71% of the schools. Uh, you know, Ibram X. Kendi's works, you know, created equal by Dr. Carson, 5%. Woke racism mm-hmm. by John McWhorter, 3%. I mean, it is, it's an astounding thing. It's like they're not just trying to indoctrinate people with false beliefs. They're trying to make it impossible for these kids to read anything that counters them, that might give them an opportunity to make up their own minds, such as capitalism, equality, rather than communism and equity. That's exactly right, Bob. And I'm so glad that you brought up the Communist Manifesto. 75% of the districts that I surveyed carried that book, but only 8% carried capitalism and freedom. So think about that for a moment. There is a, you are nine times more likely to find a literal communist manifesto than the most best-selling book, the best-selling book by Milton Friedman, which clearly demonstrates that capitalism is a force for good. It is the greatest way to remove people out of poverty. Take it even a step further and look at things like white fragility in more than half of the schools But books like Created Equal, the idea that all lives matter by Dr. Ben Carson, only at 5%. You know, I got to tell you, Bob, when this, when I don't forget about the 16, don't forget about the 1619 Project critique 
that you also oh, pointed correct. out, which most people don't even, you know, probably have never even heard of. Fifty-four percent of the schools you surveyed had Hannah, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's the sixteen nineteen project, but the sixteen nineteen project, a critique by Philip Magnus, zero percent. So no, no chance for for any child who reads or skims or scans or even looks at the book jacket of the sixteen nineteen project. No opportunity for them to say, "Is that real? Is that right? Is that accurate?" Here's the critique, and actually, you know, compare and contrast for themselves. That's exactly right. And what, what we're going to do here is we're going to put out a survey, tell you the truth, Bob, in the next couple of weeks that asks students, do they want to have an alternative book presented to them? I don't want to prejudge that outcome, but I think the answer in most cases is going to be yes. They want to be told that there is an option, there is an alternative viewpoint to what it is they are currently reading. You know, I'm surprised by how the librarians, so-called librarians, have behaved in light of this research. One librarian quote tweets me and says, as a librarian who controls the budget, there will never be a Vivek Ramaswamy book in the collection, not because I disagree wholly with his point of view, but because his point of view is dangerous. These are the people, these librarians at the gate are the ones who are denying young Americans knowledge and intellectual freedom. They are making our point for us. They're not even denying it, Bob. They're saying, of course we're doing this, and we're proud to, because conservatives are dangerous. This is a very, very sick time in our country. It, it is exactly that. It's um, it's an astounding thing to think that they have that much control. And by the way, what you just described in the, in the literature or in the reading uh, realm it was played out already in, um, in, in broadcast media. It's the reason Fox News was born. People were... And I'm not sitting here praising Fox News. I, I've got my problems with Fox News like a lot of other conservative-minded people do, and we've moved on to Newsmax and OANN and so forth. But when Fox News was born about 25 years ago, it's because there was no alternative viewpoint. It was left-wing CBS, NBC, and ABC, and that was it. And then PBS, paid for by the taxpayers, and that was it. Suddenly, here comes Fox News presenting something that maybe they didn't tell you on the, you know, Dan Rather's Nightly News. They didn't tell you on Tom Brokaw's or whatever. And people are like, oh my gosh, there's, there's another side to this? And they flocked to it. And that is what they're terrified here. They're terrified of having a another book next to the one that they prefer giving a kid an opportunity to say what there's another point of view there i really want to read that i want to see that they're terrified of that they know how it's going to turn out james that's exactly right they're terrified of truth they kept harping on and screaming bloody murder bob about the so-called book bans. and it turns out as the heritage foundation rightly pointed out in a study just recently 74 percent of the books that they say are banned are actually still available on the shelf. They say that Genderqueer is the most banned book in America. Well, guess what? It's available in 25% of the districts that I surveyed. Mike Pence's book is available in 6% of the districts. So doesn't that make Mike Pence's memoir, So Help Me God, actually the most banned book in America? No, it completely, completely unravels their banned book hopes. It was a hopes from the beginning. Of course, books like Gender Queer, which include pornographic material, have no business being on the shelf. But it's time for American patriots to step up, to stand for free, for free speech, and to say that every American, black, white, doesn't matter, has a right to intellectual freedom. 
Exactly right. Very well said and very well written. Again, I'll send people to uh, the website, or actually just pull this off of um, uh, uh, James Fishback's Twitter page. It is his pinned tweet, so it's right at the top now. Or I take that back. That's an interview with you doing uh, doing an interview on Fox News about this. But um, you can find it there as well. Go to uh, uh, James Fishback's Twitter page, at J underscore Fishback. Follow him. Follow the Incubate Debate uh, page as well. And make sure you read his very important research on uh, school libraries. Um, which was written for the free press, The Truth. And I've tweeted it, as, by the way, the link as well. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can find it easily there as well. The Truth About Banned Books by James Fishback. James, thank you for writing it. Thank you for doing it. And thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. All right, you got it. 1128 now. It's Always Right Radio. One segment to go. This one will be yours. We've been packed with guests today, as you can imagine. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Oh, my, oh, my, what a busy day this has been. If you uh, missed portions or all of the show earlier, here's what you missed. Jim Jordan joined us at 935. You're going to want to hear all these, by the way, at um, uh, whkradio.com on the podcast page. About an hour after the show ends, all of that stuff will be available. But we spoke with Jim Jordan about the uh, dropping uh, out of the presidential race by Ron DeSantis and what that means going forward in support for President Trump. We spoke to him about the illegal immigration issue. We spoke to him about Hunter Biden and the deposition, which is five weeks away. Not until February 28th. I'm still very, very frustrated by that. The pace of government, especially when things are time sensitive, is always maddening. They don't get him in there until February 28th. And then anything that they learn from him, especially as it pertains to Joe Biden, will have to be investigated after that. And pretty soon November is here, and Joe Biden is never held accountable. It's a huge problem for me, but you're going to want to hear that interview with Jim Jordan. We talked to the Reverend Nathan Newman from the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, he and they wrote a very, very important letter to Joe Biden and to Mike Johnson and to Chuck Schumer and all of governmental leadership about doing something to stop this this extraordinary, dangerous transing of America uh, that is just butchering children left and right in numbers that are just impossible to wrap your brain around. They're begging the uh, leadership to do something about this. Josh Hammer, senior editor at Newsweek, uh, joined us to talk about also Ron DeSantis uh, dropping out and what it means going forward for President Trump and unifying the Republican Party behind him. And then, of course, we just finished with James Fishback founder at Incubate Debate. I welcome your thoughts if you want to get a call or two in here before the bottom of the hour or, excuse me, the end of the show. We can do that at 216-901-0945. Briefly, though, before I take any calls, a follow-up on the biggest story of the day, which, of course, is Ron DeSantis's dropping yesterday <clears throat> from the presidential race and what it means to Donald Trump. J- Josh Hammer, Josh Power, uh, and a whole bunch of other strong DeSantis supporters based in Florida um, uh, have all said the same thing that Ron DeSantis said yesterday, and that is, it is time to coalesce around the Republican nominee. They wanted it to be DeSantis, so did I. But they and we have all made it clear from the start, we will support the Republican nominee. And that would mean even if it somehow became Nikki Haley. I don't see that happening, but I would support Nikki Haley because she's better than Joe Biden. I would support Doug Burgum. I would support Vivek Ramaswamy. I would support even Chris Christie. Anybody would be better than what the Democrats are going to nominate, which is uh, very likely to be their, their incumbent president. 
So it is an easy decision for us to say, of course we back Donald Trump. Number one, the fact that they are doing everything that they can in the form of all of this lawfare to stop him means I want him to win solely to jam that back in their faces. But number two, and Josh Hammer brought this up in our conversation, which you can hear if you listen back, is that unlike in 2016 when Trump was just a wild card, what will he do? We know what he'll do now because for three years out of his four, the fourth year was kind of a kind of a mess but uh, because of COVID and George Floyd and the whole nine yards. But for three years, we know what he, do, what he will do, which is phenomenally well. Cutting down on massive numbers of illegal immigration, cutting down on the number of unemployed, uh, cutting down or uh, expanding greatly our energy production, becoming uh, becoming energy independent, and literally being net exporters of energy for the first time in American history. And we all know the the numbers. We all know what the inflation numbers were. We all know what the foreign entanglements situation was. He's got a record. So to me, I, it's not it's a no brainer, and I don't want anybody to be you know to be ostracized for having supported somebody else because guess what donald trump is a good candidate donald trump doesn't necessarily have to be the only candidate there were good people in that race including governor DeSantis. i proudly supported him but just as i proudly supported him i am absolutely going to support and fight for donald trump because that's a fight for america we must stop them them being the radical left so let's unite Let's no more name calling, no more you know uh, finger pointing, no more backstabbing. We are all on the same side. And as soon as Nikki Haley gets it through her head that she doesn't have a path either, then it will be full steam ahead. Binary choice: Trump versus Biden, round two. Let's go. All right, Andy is in Lakewood. Andy, thanks for your patience. You're on the air. Fire away. Yeah. Good morning, Bob. Say, so, I just want to make a comment regarding our last guest and you know the fact that students. And these schools have access to all this left-wing material. One thing you got to remember about the young people today is they don't read books. They got their nose buried in their phones and social media. So even though these books are available, most of them will never even see them or check them out to read them. You're not wrong. That's the reason I brought up, you know, the difference between uh, in my interview, uh, you know, available books on a library shelf versus assigned reading, the assigned reading they have to do. And and that's a great concern, because most of these books that we're talking about, I'm not talking about the the trans books and all the other nonsense that goes with that. But, you know, particularly the books on leftist ideology, they're the ones being assigned by social studies teachers. They're the ones being assigned, uh, you know, to to kids from, you know, primary all the way through junior high and high school grades. And that's what I'm concerned about is the assigned reading, not just the availability. I see. Okay. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. Uh, Jim in Parma Heights wants to get in real quick. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Hello, Bob. Hello, Jim. Bob, I met you at the Harvest Saloon uh, last year. I, I, you have no reason to remember me, but uh, I went to see you at the Harvest Saloon and shook your hand and well, told you I enjoyed your I show. I appreciate the support. Any- I appreciate you coming out to that event. Thank you, Jim. It was great. Um I could have called you 15 years ago and told you about what's going on at the Cuyahoga County Public Library System with regard to books disappearing off the shelves. There should be an investigation as to where thousands of books disappeared from those library shelves over the course of 15 years. They built all these new libraries. They're spacious libraries. You look at the bookshelves, 
Most of them aren't even half filled with books. And we understand a lot of people are reading digitally and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But there was a concerted effort to get rid of older material. And I would argue that it was probably because it represented traditional thinking, uh, maybe patriotic thinking, maybe Christian thinking, or just, you know, old-fashioned values that need to be squelched and... Uh, in the woke world that we're now living in. Bingo. You just you, I was going to I was going to follow you up by saying you mean pre-woke America. We are in a woke right. time right now where radical wokeism is infecting uh so many elements of our society and the stuff you're talking about that, that they took off the shelves was when we were we believed in the nuclear family, we believed in faith, we believed in in patriotism, we believed in the country and now they are trying to literally make young people hate the country. That's why those books are gone. Indeed, indeed. And, you you know, I spent a lot of time in the libraries. I, this is all anecdotal, but, it, you know, I spent a lot of time in these libraries. Mm-hmm. I was in the book business at one time, so I'm kind of observant about this sort of thing. Uh, Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.